Hi folks, welcome to another edition of the Survival Podcast. There's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is December the 9th, 2022. It is Friday, and it is Friday, Friday, Friday again, finally, where we have a regular good old-fashioned expert council Q&A show for you this week. We are we are through most of the uh, the fallout of what I'm calling... The murder-suicide pact between two of my computers. Like one died, so the other one killed itself. I guess you know, it's just how it is. Anyway, um, <clears throat> what do we got for you today? Well, I've got a pretty good group of expert counsel put together for you after the aftermath of all the fallout over the last couple of weeks. Ron Paul Liberty highlights. Ron Paul will tell us how the government is once again up to do as we say, not as we do. Uh, Dan McAdams will talk about Matt Tabibi telling the truth about the Twitter files and how he's being attacked. And since he told the truth and did good journalism, he must be punished, such as the world is in 2022. Chris Rossini will tell you how he thinks Ron DeSantis, Florida Governor DeSantis, could be an actual force for liberty if he just made one more connection. Nicole Sauce talks about fencing options for chicken runs and specifically protecting your birds from predatory critters. Nick Ferguson will talk to you about transplanting citrus trees. Tips for making bone broth will come to you today from Chef Keith Snow. Jeff Lawton will talk about clearing trees for grazing when you really don't know what to do with the trees after you put them down to the ground, in this case eucalypts. Tim Toolman Cook will talk about pellet stoves, and I'm going to talk about a question I get all the time, though it's always different, but it's always the same. The way I describe it in my notes is addressing the common question, I want X... But I live in, insert special place here. The most recent one was a person, I want chickens, but I live in Massachusetts, and it gets cold in Massachusetts. I guarantee you, I am going to get a question before the week ends next week. Jack, I want chickens, but I live in, insert hot place here. South Florida, Southern California, the desert, whatever. And I'm not picking on the people asking these questions. This is a perfectly legitimate question but the best answer you'll ever get to that type of question is probably one that's right in front of you, but you don't see it, and maybe it's not what you want to hear on a podcast. We'll see when I give you that answer. With that, before we get started, let me remind you guys, you can always help support this show. How? You can always just simply begin your shopping at tspaz.com. Now, on a Friday show, I don't have a specific product recommendation for you. Though one may went out in the Daily Mail, I just don't know. I pre-record the Friday shows so I can take Friday off with my family. So that's why I don't have a product usually on the air. But if something comes on my screen, I may put that out. So get on the Daily Mail. Go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on the Daily Mail, and fill out a form, and you'll get a mail once a day, an email once a day, that'll just tell you, hey, here's what's new. It's four or five bullet points and some links. That's all it is. No tracking or anything inside of it. It's just a typical, hey, guess what? Here's what's new at the site. But definitely do your shopping at tspaz.com. And I should have out today, if I didn't get it out yesterday, an article with some of the things that I'm recommending as Christmas gifts that are in the tspaz catalog. Also remember, uh, if you're going to be spending money, and you are, 
then you might as well earn cash back on the money that you spend. And why don't you earn something that's real money back on that money you're spending, like Bitcoin? You can do that with the Fold card. There's a link in the show notes today. Most of the time there's a link in the show notes. You can always find all my recommended Bitcoin tools at thebitcoinbreakout.com as well. But if you get the Fold card and you spend the money you're spending anyway through the Fold card instead of however you're doing it now, so you pay your bills with it, etc., you'll earn Bitcoin back. And that's just awesome. I have personally now earned back almost 4 million sats in Bitcoin just this year. Four, not quite, close, but almost 4 million sats back. And by the end of the year, I will have, I'll have 400, 4 million satoshis that I otherwise would not have. And it didn't cost me anything. This is why I say if you don't use the fold card, well... <clears throat> You kind of hate money. And there's keys to knowing how to game it. I give you all that information at the link. Uh, again, just look up today's show notes. Look at our sponsors of the day and see. Get the fold card. Stop hating money. With that, let's go ahead dive off headlong into this, starting out with the Ron Paul Liberty highlights. First time we've heard Ron in almost a month now. Bipartisan group of U.S. senators warns the Communist Party of, <laughs> of China Overquelling of protests. They're they're uh, warning us. When our our senators are saying, "Don't you do this? If you mistreat those protesters, we're going to punish you." I thought, well, I wonder if this see if there's any example that we could see where our country, uh, you know, disobeyed the principles of civil liberties in this country and punished people who spoke out on certain issues. Well, let's start with a couple of individuals who were who became whistleblowers. You know, we know a few of those that uh, that, that that they didn't do well. So th- this whole thing that we are going over there, you, you know, you could still have that opinion. Let's say that we're in a better position and we do a much better job than they think they're doing, and you could say, you know. The, the Chinese, uh, you know, shouldn't do that. And there's principles that we believe in. There is a higher law you should follow. And uh, the country and the world would be better off if you didn't do that. And uh, hopefully we didn't have, wouldn't have to brag, but they could look at us and say, you know, things are going pretty well with the, the United States. They don't arrest people for demonstration, <laughs> you know. A cautionary tale for everyone. The media mob turns on Taibi. And he makes the point, generally speaking, that for Taibi to get a scoop like this, he and Barry Weiss to get a scoop like this, normally you would praise a journalist. Wow, this is amazing. He's got a great scoop. He's dropping it. But that's not exactly what happened, Dr. Paul. He's been ruthlessly, ruthlessly attacked by his fellow journalists. Uh, the reporters, the reporters turn on their own. and But that that is the same thing. That's a, how menacing this is because... The physicians, <coughs> the, <coughs> excuse me, the physicians organizations all turned on the doctors who were telling the truth yeah. and reporting scientific evidence of you know about what was going on with COVID, and they get punished and thrown out, and it's still going on, and they lose their jobs. And here, Taibi, this look try to look for the positive. More people will know his name today than they knew yesterday. Yeah. They say, oh, he's on our side of this. And He has his own substack, and that's where you write, and people who like it subscribe, mm-hmm. and they give you like five bucks a month. His substack is way, way, way bigger than any of their readership, <laughs> and he makes tons more money than they do because he actually has people that want to pay for what he does. So that's the other thing that they hate about Taibi. That's what they hate about Greenwald and others, too, is they don't have to come begging um, they just have to produce good work. He uncovered this massive scandal. That makes him a horrible person. It's really, it says everything you need to know about the media, I think. Boy, boy that's for sure. 
We have praised Ron DeSantis uh, over the last few years because he has been a star, and he was he was the star of the election. His people voted for him uh, in tremendous numbers, and he was reelected. And it's because he stood for freedom against unprecedented tyranny that has never occurred before uh, in the world. And he was, you know, one of the few that did the right thing. But as we mentioned even last week and this week, and, and he's governor, so he has no foreign policy. But if he ever becomes president, his foreign policy views, we think, need a lot of work because they're interventionist. You know, and it clearly goes against what he has done, what has made him a star. This man understands Florida first. He took care of the people in his state. He did not go around trying to remake New York, to remake California because they weren't free and they weren't. He let them go and live in their misery. And he took care of the people in Florida. That is how American foreign policy should be. Ron DeSantis needs to make that connection. Let, you know, we need to be a shining example, just like you made Florida a shining example. We're not supposed to go around and try to remake the world that are not like us and are constantly fail and go bankrupt doing it. So if he would to, would to, would take the philosophy that he has done as a governor and applied it to American foreign policy, I mean, you're talking about a major, major force that the American people would finally, you know, be able to unite around. Now, the establishment would not like it. They want the empire. So I think what uh, Dr. Paul and Dan McAdams had to say speaks for itself. I'm going to just say a little bit more about Chris Rossini's observation about DeSantis, and then we'll move on to uh, talking about chickens today, right? So... I agree 100% with what Chris is saying, though I have zero optimism that DeSantis will, will turn that corner uh, back toward the concept of liberty and, and, and truly America first. And it's probably because, like most politicians, and especially politicians that come from a military background, and remember, DeSantis was an officer, he went to, I, th I think he was, went to the Naval Academy, if I remember right. Uh, I think he was a Naval officer. Their belief is that interventionism is putting America first. I know if you've woken up to the sad non-reality of that claim that it sounds stupid, but what they what this you have to understand why people think the way they do. So what they think is that all these interests are out there trying to hurt us at home and abroad. So if I'm putting America first, I have to go out and meet the threat. And this is programmed into people. And no matter how overall decent a person is, they are the result of their programming unless they've done extensive work in trying to fight back against it. But I will tell you something. DeSantis is more likely to be our next president with the foreign policy that he apparently has than with the one I would prefer. Because people think this way, too. People think America first is bomb the shit out of them over there so they don't attack us over here. Not understanding that bombing the shit out of them over there is probably why they attack us over here. So the only hope in this wouldn't be that DeSantis turns the corner. It's that DeSantis is making a calculated estimation that he has to sound tough on foreign policy, even if he intends to act differently if he should become president. What are the odds that Ron DeSantis is the next president? I would say very high. I would say very high. I, I would say that as far as the return of the Great Pumpkin, the Orange Man, 
every time Trump opens his mouth, the odds that he will be president again go down. Personally, I don't think we need another Trump presidency. We already know what it's going to look like, and I'm not talking about what he will or will not do. I'm talking about what the, the, the catastrophic, nonsensical crap will be all around it. And so while I don't vote, and I don't really care who the next president is, if I had to pick a horse right now, it would be Governor Ron DeSantis. I, I think there's a lot of people that are going to pop up into the, the Republican clown car circus, though, very soon, as we start heading into that cycle of getting ready for 2024. And I'll tell you, there's probably some names on that list that most people aren't even thinking of yet. Um, Suarez, Mayor Suarez, Francis Suarez from Miami. I think we'll end up on that list, uh, touting himself as a Bitcoiner, by the way, which he's really a shitcoiner. Uh, there's some other folks that I see popping up, but I actually see a ton of, I think Cruz will come back at it again. I think Marco Rubio is likely to, to uh, put another uh, attempt in at it. I don't know if Rick Perry wants to be involved in politics again, but I, I think that was one of his bucket list ideas. Uh, I think Governor Abbott of Texas has a strong probability of running, and I'm not picking any of these people to win. I'm picking them to run right now. And, and there's some other folks that I think might pop up, but I think it will be a clown car show again. And this is why I think that even though I said that the the, the odds of the orange man returning as the great pumpkin and being pre president again go down every time he opens his mouth, that doesn't mean that they go away. The bigger the clown car circus is on the Republican side, the, the more likely it is that Trump ends up the nominee. The smaller the clown show, the less likely. The bigger the clown show, the more likely. Because what happens is the anti-Trump vote within the GOP will get spread amongst all the other clowns. And if the clowns have their shit together, they would all get together and say, look, guys... Francis freaking Suarez is not going to be president of the United States. You don't go for Miami mayor that almost nobody in the country outside of the Bitcoin circles know to POTUS because you, you're slick and you talk well. Because he is slick and he does talk well. Right? You don't do that. That's not going to happen. It's like, just like Buttigieg was never going to be president. You have Biden for the same reason. That's why you got Biden from the Democrats because the clown car was so full. This is what happens when you have a giant clown car. The person who is the anti-candidate to the base becomes the nominee, the bigger the clown show is, because the more they like, well, I can't have him, so i got to pick somebody else. Ber Bernie, Kamala, like Warren, all these idiots. So just a little look at, you know, Ask Clown Circus 2024, because it'll be coming up soon. Now let's talk about something a little more practical in our lives, like protecting our chickens from things that want to eat them that aren't us. Hey, TSP, Nicole Sauce here coming to you from the Living Free in Tennessee podcast and Holler Roast Coffee, where we are burning out some Christmas orders. I have a question in from Andrew. What is a good fencing option for a chicken run? I am wanting to build a permanent chicken run around a small fruit orchard, but I'm not sure what kind of fencing to use. The orchard is about 100 feet by 30 feet. I live in western Washington State, have coyotes, raccoons, neighborhood dogs, hawks, eagles as predators. YouTube and the Internet are full of options. I'm not really sure what is needed or necessary. Well, Andrew, 
I have some thoughts on this, and I think what you're asking me is how do I keep my chickens ranging outside without being killed by the predators that you listed, which are similar to the list of predators I have here at the Holler Homestead, and I free-range my poultry. I free-range them so much they actually go off property sometimes, and that is my problem, not your problem, because they it's not going to go off property. So I think putting a fence in to keep them in an area is very important. Now, the best thing I ever did, there are two things I did to predator, not proof, but almost predator proof my poultry was this. One, I taught my poultry to go into a very, very secure coop after dark. We let them out at nine in the morning. That is well after the sun comes off. We leave them in the coop until 9 a.m. And we put them in the coop at dusk. That coop is coyote proof, dog proof, raccoon proof, weasel proof. It's not snake proof. But it keeps them safe at the time of day when they are most likely to be attacked by things. The second thing I did is I taught my dogs about bad birds. You know what a bad bird is? It's not your poultry. It's not a songbird. It's not a finch. It is any large bird of prey. And the way I taught my dogs to do this is when I saw one, I would point at it, yell, bad bird, go woof, 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 run around the yard like a maniac. The dogs thought this was all sorts of fun. And they started pointing out bad birds to me and barking at them. I also will do this for vultures, right? So the chicken, or was it turkey vultures? Those make great practice bad birds because they look like a bad bird, but they're not going to come down and attack your poultry, and they're around more where I am. So whenever my dogs are outside and they're kind of feeling like, what do I need to do? They scan the sky, and if they see a bad bird, they go after the bad bird. This makes my property a lot less attractive for birds of prey to land. Since doing these two things, and separate from any fence, I've lost one or two every year or two to an above-grade predator, so to to a bird of prey, and it's been because the dogs weren't outside. Other than that, we have not had losses. Before I taught the dogs to do this, and before I had a secure coop, I was losing things to raccoons and all sorts of other stuff. I used to leave the coop door open into a run that I thought was raccoon proof. It was a 10 by 10 box with a cover. It was chain link fence. And those little buggers, if there is one iota of a tiny gap that they could possibly fit through, they have all night long smelling delicious poultry to figure it out. Okay, so back to your fencing problem. The fence that I would put up in your situation is a perimeter fence of either chain link or something like the woven wire I put in, which is is for horses, properly stretched around that orchard. And I would think very carefully about where I want gates and add an X. If you're asking yourself, should I put a gate there? The answer is probably yes. And it's a lot easier to do that up front and it's a lot better to invest in gates and I like the woven wire just because it's a it's a pretty staunch barrier and if you ever decide to add a ruminant it's there for you which is great it will help keep 
the neighborhood dogs out because that's your other issues. You're going to need to keep those neighborhood dogs out. And if they start jumping the fence, you can add a layer on top with an electric wire around the top, and then they will stop jumping your fence. But usually that woven wire fence, four or five feet tall, is enough to keep most neighborhood dogs who are not that terribly motivated to get things out. Once you have that done, as long as you have that secure coop, and if you can train your dogs, if you have dogs to do the bad bird thing, you're going to be good sh- in good shape. If you don't have dogs, hmm, you need to reexamine your priorities in life. Now, think about it. Can you add one? If not, you are going to need to worry about that overhead pressure, and then you may not be free-ranging them in this space, and you may need to come up with a solution that allows you to tractor them or keep them covered from above because the biggest issue I see on your on your list are the eagles and hawks if you do not have a way to discourage them from coming. Everything else pretty much stays out if you have them in a secure coop during dark. I hope this answer helps you guys. Guess what? It is December 8th, 9th, 10th, something like that when this segment comes out. And there's a holiday coming. Holler Roast has a great gift option for you. We do sampler packs. It's three six-ounce bags of different kinds of coffee. If you order it and know the person you're ordering it for prefers a dark or a medium roast, you can write that in the comments. Anyway, we ship those out either in a gift bag or wrapped. It just depends on what works best with the packaging. And they make a great gift. Uh, it's about It starts at $35. That includes shipping. You can do a spirit cold one for more. That's all over at hollerroast.com. And if you are in Jack's membership brigade, you get a discount on this as well as other delicious coffees. Just head on over to hollerroast.com and let us ship your presents for you. What could be easier? Make it a great week. So I agree with every single thing that Nicole said about ways to try to keep your birds safe. Um, I will tell you, though, that when it comes to hawks in particular, you will end up with problem animals that decide to make a living off your flock. And if they can slip in when that dog's not paying attention, they'll do it. They're very smart, and, you know, if you're in a situation where – you're continuously losing birds, and you don't have a big enough flop to absorb the losses. Going to a coop and run is not a terrible idea. It's not it's not chicken abuse or something like that. Chickens can live in coop and run systems very, very happily. My grandparents always ran their chickens in a coop and run environment. They had actually a double run, victory garden type setup. We grew our corn where the chickens uh, we grew some. We grew some of our corn because we actually grew quite a bit of corn. Uh, but we grew our corn where the chickens would would be one year, and then the next year they would be on the other side. And the chickens were let out, and so the way that it worked would be somewhere midday, you know, late day, four o'clock in the afternoon. The old man would go down and he'd let the chickens out for a while. So they did, in his words, cost too much damn trouble, right? Because they only had a couple hours before dark. They were already kind of on alert because it's starting to get dark. Chickens are not hip on being out in the dark. And so that is an approach. As far as the, 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 the fencing options, what I'll tell you about coop and run with chickens as far as a predator protection thing, if you don't have a roof, you don't have protection because your primary prey uh, animal during the day is going to be raptors. And they don't care. And they will, this is something else you need to know. 
I had some birds in my aviary this year, and I went out there, and, and I was shocked that two of them were dead. And what was left was clearly what you expect to see after a, a hawk gets a bird. There was a hole I could just barely stick my hand through. And that freaking hawk, where the, 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 uh, the mesh had actually peeled back, the nails that were holding the, the hardware cloth on uh, popped out and this piece peeled back. That hawk was intent enough on killing those birds that it found that opening and it needed to be repaired. So you have to treat hawks almost to the level that you have to treat uh, like raccoons and whatnot with, it's just a different time of day. You don't really get a lot of hawk action at midnight, right? So I don't care what fencing you use. I care that what you do is you build a large enough area with sufficient you know, overhead protection that's actually closed in if you want to go with the coop and run environment. And I, I think the more I think about it and the more I gain experience the more sense I believe it makes for the most people when we're talking about smaller flocks. I think when we're talking about really big flocks, we have to figure something out. We have to come up with protection dogs or some philosophy or some group of techniques that allow those birds to range because putting too many birds in a run environment really does start to cause problems or the size of the run environment becomes inefficient relative to the production of the flock and the flock's best best use would be out on, on land, okay? But when we're talking about people that are, they're keeping a few birds, a few to a dozen birds for their own use, they're breeding and selling maybe, but they're not trying to do large restaurant-level production or anything like that. Coupon Run was used forever in a day because it works and it protects your animals. And so the person with four backyard hens that wants to do it, I say go forth and do. Uh, next up, Nick Ferguson on transplanting citrus trees. Hey there, Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty and RarePlantStore.com here with an expert counsel answer on transplanting citrus trees. But first, I want to answer the most commonly asked question these days, Nick, when are trees available for sale? The answer is they'll be officially available for pre-order starting January 1st. But if you're in my Telegram group, you might get the notification that orders have gone live a day or two early, I'm just saying. Uh, this winter, we're going to have some new options as well. I'm excited about that. Hardwood cuttings are making their debut on the store, so I'll have hybrids of poplar and willow available cheaper per tree as hardwood cuttings. And these are the exact same trees cut off of the same trees Jack bought for me and planted in his food forest. So if that's something you've been interested in, make sure to join the Telegram group and check out rareplantstore.com. And that Telegram group is t.me forward slash rareplantstore. All right, on to the question from the listener. This is from Bruce, and he says, I have two citrus trees, lemon and orange, in half wine barrels. We live in zone 9A and we would like to move them to another area in my yard. One of those, the orange, needs to be transplanted because the barrel is rotting. My own research has netted that you should transplant into a larger vessel. However, that is not an option because we do not own a larger wine barrel. Uh, we'd like to transplant to another barrel and not plant this into the ground. What's the procedure for doing this, and or what is your recommendation? Thank you, Bruce. <clears throat> 
All right, well, the best thing you can do is to transplant into a larger vessel, like you said, but the second best option is to get the same size pot, roll the original pot to release the roots from the sides, so you lay it on its side and roll it, and then you ease the root ball out of the old pot, keeping it on its side. And what you can do is you can just kind of squish the sides of the pot. I know it's kind of rotting, so it should give a bit. Um, as you're grabbing hold of the base of the tree, and you might have someone else helping to roll while pulling the pot away from the root ball. And you can kind of just roll the tree along the ground and separate the pot from the roots, keeping it on its side. And this will support the trunk and the top of the tree and not cause too much strain on the roots and where it connects the, you know, the, um, the root crown. <clears throat> All right. And then uh, I'd take a hose sprayer and rinse some of the old soil off of the root ball and fluff that sucker up a bit, just a little bit. Don't go too crazy, um, but release a bit of that old compacted soil and rinse it off to make room for some new soil. All right, provided you rinse some of the bottom soil off, you'll want to throw an inch or so of new soil in the bottom of the new pot. If there's too many roots there and it's just solid roots, um, then you're probably not going to be able to do this if it's the exact same size pot. Um, but if you were able to, <clears throat> then, uh, then I'd pick that tree up um, at the base of the trunk, supporting the bottom of the root ball. And you should use a couple tie-down straps under the bottom of the root ball, uh, just in case you need to remove it again, because that'll mean you can just grab those tie-down straps and lift the straps out and um, remove the root ball um, easier that way. Um, and depending on your strength level, this might take two or three people. Test fit the tree in its new pot to make sure it fits. You want at least two inches of free space between the soil level and the lip of the pot to make sure it gets properly watered later. If that soil is too full, you're never going to get enough water in that pot. If that pot ever dries out, you will not be able to water it deep enough and well enough if there's no headspace in between the top of the soil and the lip. So, if you have between two and three inches of free board space to the lip of the pot, then I'd just pull those straps, slip them out, and fill around the sides, because there should be a little bit of space now, with a light coating of uh, the new soil on top of the root ball and on the sides. <clears throat> and then you need to water that in very thoroughly. You'll likely need to add more soil one or two times as it's going to rinse down and compact with the water's movement. Now, we need to talk about the kind of soil you're using. You can use just regular potting soil, but I prefer to repot things like this with straight worm castings. Buy a couple big bags online or at a local shop use that stuff straight. It's a bit expensive, but you are going to have such great results, it's worth it. That's all there is to it. Just make sure you water that tree in real well and give the pot a few bumps and shakes to settle the worm castings down the sides while you're watering it. You don't want big pockets of air. And just, you know, if, it, if all the soil just kind of disappears, that's fine. Throw some handfuls in there and it's just going to keep rinsing down the sides and it's going to fill up the sides and fill into all those nooks and crannies and get some of that good stuff in contact with the roots. I hope that answers your question, Bruce. And again, if you're on Telegram, you will want to join that group. I only post a couple times a year on there to notify people when sales are happening or a restock has occurred. Sometimes, you know, halfway through January, we'll have a whole bunch of new items come up. And if you're not on Telegram, you're not going to hear about it. 
um, and mark the 1st of January as plant buying day because like every year, I know I'm going to sell out. I know for sure I don't have enough cuttings to go around, so those cheaper options will go like wildfire, and I want to get them into your hands, and you want to get them in the ground this year. So you can find those at www.rareplantstore.com. I'm Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty. Do good things. Well, good stuff from Nick Ferguson as always. Chef Keith Snow now on some tips for making bone broth using some classic culinary techniques. Hey, it's Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com and FoodStorageFeast.com. Wanted to give a little tip about bone broth. I get a lot of emails and instant messages about bone broth recipes, which seem to be all the rage these days. And online, there is a absolute crap ton of people, uh, most of which don't have really any cooking experience other than home cooking, which not a problem, but there are some classical techniques used to make bone broths in restaurants that I just wanted to bring to your attention um, because a lot of times people are just recommending to throw all of your bones, whether they be beef bones, chicken bones, whatever, with vegetables, uh, maybe some aromatics, ginger, garlic, whatever, into an instant pot and, and letting it go or, or a crock pot or just on the stove um, simmering it. And that certainly can do it, but if you want to take it to the next level, there needs to be some work done with the bones. Now, back in the day when I used to work in kitchens that um, they were focused on you know, French classical cooking, we made demi-glace and very intense flavored um, stocks and soups and sauces. You know, We had a person there called a saucier, and you train in all stations in the kitchen. The saucier would typically... Um, make this, and we would do it um, towards the end of a shift where we would call it, we would call it rolling a stock. So we would do all the preparation, and we would make stocks, and they would simmer very slowly, just a barely um, breaking the surface of the water with a bubble overnight. And that's safe to do in a restaurant kitchen. You have vent hoods and all that. And we would do it in giant, giant um, pots. They have big handles on them, and and two very strong line cooks would need to. Uh, lift this thing because it could be, you know, 20, 25 gallons, big, heavy thing. So you lift it up on the stove, push it to the very back, and you would roll the stock overnight. Now, prior to doing that, um, we would do something that I don't see anyone on the Internet really recommending that I could find, you know, in a 10-minute search. And I went through 15 or 20 sites, and, again, it's just all the sort of, you know, Johnny-come-lately blogger types that are recommending this. So I wanted to let you know what we used to do. First, we would take bones, let's say they're um, beef bones, usually shin bones, knuckle bones. We would put them into a pot of very vigorously boiling water. And a lot of people, oh, no, you never want to boil it. Well, trust me, we would boil it vigorously for 15, 20 minutes, something like that at maximum. And then we would drain them off into a sink, run cold water on them until we could handle them. And then we would pick up the bones and literally scrub them with um, a vegetable scrub brush. And we would scrub all the little brown bits and anything that's kind of stuck on there. We wouldn't dig the marrow out if, there were, if these were marrow bones, but we would scrub the bones until they were nice and white and clean. And then we would proceed with making whatever stock or soup or, or um, whatever it was. And if we wanted to make something very dark, like a dark beef stock, at that point we would roast the bones. That's not a very complicated process. It's basically 
take the bones and we would toss a little bit of neutral um, fat or oil over them. You could use something like um, beef tallow and just uh, melt some tallow and toss the bones in that. Put them in a deep roasting tray in an oven at about 400 degrees and just watch them until they start to take on some good color. At that point, we would take that out and we would do something called painting the bones. We would take tomato paste in a lot of cases and the back of a wooden spoon and just paint the bones. And you don't have to be, not every little inch of it needs to be painted. Um, The idea is just to get this um, tomato paste in there. We would kind of paint it all over the bones and then we would add vegetables, usually mirepoix, and those were not finely um, chopped. These were very roughly chopped up um, pieces. We toss them again in a little, you know, beef tallow or or some oil. Those would go in there, a little salt and pepper, and then it would roast another 25 to 30 minutes until everything had quite a bit of color on it. That whole mixture was then put into that giant. Um, stock pot and it would be filled with cold water. We always started with very cold water out of the tap and then you would roll your stock like that. So if you're making, um, particularly if you want to make a clear um, beef broth or something very clean that you can just sip, you don't want all that uh, impure taste that you would get from throwing the bones in and just making it. Um, you have a lot of scum that rises to the surface. You have a real gamey uh, flavor. There's, there's bits of blood all over it. It can be pretty nasty. And if you take the step that I just described, whether or not you roast it, as long as you boil it and scrub it and then put them in there, and you don't want it to boil after that, and you always want to start with cold water and let that thing simmer you can make really, really good bone broth, but I'm going to tell you, you need a lot more time than you think. You're not going to make true good bone broth in two hours. If you want it to start to get some good gelatin in there, again, that's what people, that's the reason they want to drink bone broth is because they want that um, collagen that comes from long, slow simmers to help heal leaky gut syndrome. And most of the places that you find uh, making uh, bone broth, that's what they're you know, they're suggesting a lot of the naturopathic doctors drink bone broth. You're not just drinking it because it tastes good. Well, it's got a lot of collagen, but you have to do it right, and it takes a long, long time. So that is a tip I wanted to bring to everybody. If you want your bone broths, your stocks, whatever, your soups, your pho, if you're going to make some, you know, Vietnamese noodle soup, whatever, you want that to be very clean and pristine. So you want to boil and scrub those bones. So with that, I wanted to thank Jack for the show, thank all of you out there, and hope you all have a great rest of your week and weekend. Take care, everyone. So there's some interesting things in there that I may uh, give a try to, like painting the bones with uh, tomato paste. That, that actually sounds really an interesting way to do things, and some other stuff that, that Keith said. I, I'll tell you that I'm entirely skeptical that there's any need to ever wash bones before you make bone stock, and I probably won't ever do that. And one other little nitpicking thing I have, not just with Keith, but with all chefs, the average person who is a chef should refrain from using the word gamey ever in their life because they use it like this all the time, and it's absolutely meaningless phraseology. Gamey's not a flavor. Salty's a flavor. Bitter's a flavor. Sour's a flavor. Gamey's not a flavor. There's no taste buds on your tongue called the gamey taste buds. And gamey has been used just consistently to infer that anything that's off-putting in flavor, we'll just call it gamey, and this puts a negative connotation on the concept of game. 
And then you hear them cook something that is game, like a pheasant or a, a venison, and say, it doesn't even taste gamey, as though there's something wrong with game, right? Animals that we go kill in the woods to eat, as though if we kill an animal in the woods to eat, it's somehow inherently different than when we kill one that lives in our backyard. This is something, and it's not about picking on Keith. Again, this is all you chefs and everybody out there throwing the word gamey around. We should just get rid of the word. It doesn't mean what you think it means. Stop using it. And you guys rub your bones if you want to. Uh, I think I'll stick to what I've always been doing. Let's hear from uh, Jeff Lawton now on um, if you're clearing property for grazing and you have an abundance of low-value trees that are coming down, what do you do with them other than set them on fire? Jeff here, coming to you from Jordan in the Dead Sea Valley at the Green in the Desert Project. And we have a question here coming in from Bathurst, Australia, in regard to um, a property that's 200 hectares in size, that's over 400 acres, 450 acres, and uh, they've got permission to clear a lot of the trees to improve the pasture. It's all eucalypt forest, and they don't really want to burn the trees, um, although they've been advised to, um, and they're piling up fast, and they want to know what to do with them. They feel like it's a waste to burn it, and it's a lot of energy to bury it. They're a 25-ton excavator. So what you can do is you can get the excavator to lay them out on contour and try and break them up a lot, smash them up, see if you can get the root ball broken off the trunk if possible because there's a lot of material in the root ball. But get the excavator to pile them up on contour like a big, long contour swale mound and, and smash them up, roll over them and smash them up and, and pile them up. So it's like a swale mound of, of, of broken up tree timber. And um, if you can possibly get a laser level and, and, and peg it out so it's pretty much on contour, it'll slow a lot of the erosion coming off the landscape. And you can plant inside it, so you can once it's rotten down a bit or it's broken down a bit, you can get inside it where the cows and the animals can't get to and you can plant all kinds of pioneer trees in there. And you can plant a lot of trees that'll hang over the edge and create cattle forage. So you can actually plant around the edges as long as it's far enough in the cattle can't get to them, you can plant a lot of trees that the cattle will get for feed when they get big enough and hang over the edges. And right in the middle, you can plant timber trees, which will end up coming up pretty straight through the piles of timber um, because they'll be going up like standards, looking for the light. If you plant them deep down in, in pockets in the timber where it touches the ground, but you've got a pocket. And those will be nice straight fence posts to help your fence in, in the future. So you can get some timber, you can get some addition to the uh, cattle feed. Or, uh, apart from the grass, you'll get forage off the trees you plant along the edge, and there'll be a benefit to the general soil condition across the pasture. It'll improve your pasture in between the tree lines. Now, um, the distance between them is going to be relative to how much material you've got. So it, you don't want to make it too hard for yourself. Uh, you drag sort of 20, 30, 40 metres downhill, make a pile, it's easier, quicker, drag them downhill, make a pile, uh, move them out on contour, try and get it pretty much on contour, especially on the upside, because the upside is where it's going to interrupt the water flow, and it's going to end up being like a, a, a timber-piled windrow on contour swale-type system. There you go. Excellent, excellent 
uh, answer from Jeff, which is what we would always expect. And I, I'm not going to add anything to anything Jeff Lawton has to say because I think he, he says it enough for himself. I'm going to go on to mine. So I got a question today, and I may actually answer that question in a multi-question show and try to do my best to help um, more directly. I'm going to try to do this more generically today. And the question was basically, I listen to your show on Backyard Livestock. I want chickens. I live in Massachusetts. It's it really cold. You know, what breed of chicken? What should I do to protect my chickens, et cetera? And like I said in my intro, the thing about this is you get this question repackaged. I get this question. I should say you get this I get this question repackaged and reassembled in different mechanisms and ways a dozen times a week, maybe more. And I'm not complaining. Don't, don't take it that way. Sometimes I think when I say these things, people think I'm complaining. I'm just explaining why I'm coming at this from a generic standpoint. So there's, there's two things going on here. One, first of all, in general, when it comes to small livestock, they've been kept throughout the United States in every climate. So there may be a breed that's more, you know, more, more useful in your area or more adapted for your area. So heavy feathered birds might be more adapted. So your cochins and things like that might be better adapted to winter climates, though they live here just fine. And and I do know for a fact that like the most heat tolerant of your common poultry, uh, your chicken breeds is a white leghorn, that they can handle heat better than most other birds. And if you look at one in the way they're built and their thinner feathers and their lighter body design, you can infer why. But the reality is in most cases, it's not that critical. The, 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 the people are keeping the same stuff across the contiguous 48 states and in Alaska and Hawaii where it can be done at all, right, you know. So it's not as big a problem as people tend to make it out to be. But there are certainly things that a person has to worry about in a very cold northern climate when it comes to keeping livestock that a person in a climate like mine doesn't. You know, one thing would be no matter what you have, it's going to need to drink water. And so you're going to have to have a way to make sure that they have access to water during long, cold winters would be one. Now, exactly how? It all depends. And see, that's where it gets into this, well, what do I do? Well, I don't know. What do you have? How many do you want to keep? Uh, are we talking plants or animals? Or are you talking about building a building? Like, cause this, Again, this question is not about chickens when it really comes down to it. Is I have this thing that you talked about or I've seen on TV or I heard on the Internet or whatever, and I want this thing, but when I saw this thing, it was in a place different than where I am. So I'm worried if I bring it to my place, then there'll be problems that weren't in the thing that was told me about the thing, right? That's really what it is. Like, you know, building a building is going to be different. Uh, what kind of vehicle you might want primarily uh, might be different, et cetera, right? And that, this is legitimate. I'm not saying it's not legitimate. I'm saying that a lot of times in our minds, the differential is much larger than we expect. But what differential we really need to find? How do you do this? I think that we'll also expand on this when I do my fourth pillar of homesteading, which is local foraging and trade knowledge. Because trade knowledge is not just knowledge of where I can go exchange something for something else. That I know that Buddy Shoemaker makes wine, and if I take him grapes, he'll make me wine and give me half the wine out of my grapes. That is a form of trade knowledge, knowing who you can go do business with. Or I know in, in where I'm at now that a gentleman down the road from me will sell me a half beef once a year and, and will find me a partner to buy the other half if I don't have one. Right? That's trade knowledge. 
The other thing about trade knowledge is being able to know where to go to gain knowledge locally so that you can apply knowledge that already exists. Regional elder knowledge, right? The, the intellectual capital of your community in the eight forms of capital. So what I would do if I wanted to keep chickens in Massachusetts and I had specific concerns that I wasn't sure how to address them, I would find somebody as close as I could to me who keeps chickens, and I would simply contact them and say, hey, could I, could I you know, buy you a beer or a coffee and sit down and talk with you about how you raise your chickens? I'm thinking about getting chickens, and, and I, I've never done it before, and I, I wanted to know from somebody doing it in our climate how you handle everything. And most people will tell you, yes, or at least I'll have a phone conversation with you. I am going to caution you from something, okay, because I get it all the time. The whole, can I come check out your operation, come see your you, – you, you're talking about people you, you're contacting, and they don't know you. They don't know you. And, and like, I, get, I get it all the time, and people feel like they know me, but I don't know you. I usually say no to that request, whether it's a local request or I just happen to be passing through tomorrow at 3 o'clock, and it's like 7 o'clock tonight. I'm going to say no to that, by the way. If you ever want an ability to stop by and hang out with us, I say yes sometimes. And when I say yes, it almost always comes with, it'll be in a couple weeks. When people ask me last minute, I almost, unless I already know you and you're just a friend, I, I usually say no. So don't necessarily like invite yourself into their operation. Hey, I just noticed that you got, you're selling eggs on Craigslist. I don't need any eggs. I'm actually looking at keeping chickens. I'm in your area. Would you be free for a conversation? phone or I can buy you a coffee. Let me know. And that person might come back with, come on over and see. And that's more likely to happen if you don't ask. I always say, if you don't ask, right, if you don't ask, the answer is always no. But there are times when you're, you ask, what you ask for is knowledge and help, not the form of knowledge and help. You leave it in that person's court and you're more likely to get a friendly response. But for any situation like this, you know, that's what I would do. And sometimes it doesn't even require that level of communication. So people say, well, what apples should I grow? Well, I would start out with, are apples grown commercially where you live? And if the answer is no, that doesn't mean you can't, but it means maybe apples isn't really the way to go. Does anybody commercially grow apples where you are? Great, they do. Contact them and ask them what varieties of apples they grow. And I'm not saying those are the only apples that grow. I'm saying those are the ones that are proven to do well. The other thing would be check your local, your closest university, right? Their ag department will often have all kinds of information. When I was looking for what blackberries would do best in Texas, University uh, UT Austin had all kinds, and then the Ag, you know Aggies, man, they had everything you wanted to know about blackberries in Texas. Which ones? And that, then be careful, because they'll say, well, you know, this particular berry has a prop, you know, a preponderance to get this particular uh, fungus, uh, fungal disease. Well, okay. They're telling you that it's commonly grown here, though, so it's probably going to be okay. And if you have good soil practices, it probably won't be a problem anyway. So don't don't get into analysis paralysis, but just look at well, what is what do people do that want to do the thing that I want to do that live where I'm at, and use that local expertise, that that community intellectual capital.
Because I promise you, there's tons of people in Massachusetts who keep chickens. It's not even hard. It's not even hard. I know tons of people north of you keep chickens. Plenty of people keep chickens in Maine. Plenty of people keep chickens in central Wyoming. Whole new kind of cult. And, and, and to me, that's... For, but let me give a little bit of an answer to the person that asked the question. Heavy-bodied, lots of feathered birds are going to do better in cooler climates, right? So look for heavy-bodied, larger birds. Make sure that their coop will close up nice for them and block the wind. The wind is the killer when it comes to your livestock, more than the overall temperature. Um, when you set roosts up, if you look in my chicken coop, my roosts are made with cheap 2x4 lumber, and they are set on the, the, the big flat side is up, so that chickens can be very comfortable up there and chill out. My understanding is, and this is why you talk to people with the local thing, that if you do that in these climates that they'll literally sometimes freeze to the board. It sounds kind of crazy to me, but that's what people say, that they'll get frostbite on their feet and whatever, so they go end up on their boards, or use you know, more like a round, like a broom handle type uh, thing. So those would be two things. And above everything, those birds are going to need water and food every day, and the food is on you, but the water is on making sure you have a way to keep running water, liquid water available to your birds, and then you'll probably be fine. Anyway, with that, we've wrapped things up. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, remember, again, you can always help us out by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. You'll find all the stuff that I recommend. It is the Christmas time of year. Lots of shopping's going on. Please remember, T-Spaz, when you do your online Christmas shopping, it won't cost you any extra dollars out of your pocket, but we'll put a few extra dollars in ours so we can keep doing what we do for you. And remember, if you really want to save some money, then you've got to become a member of the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade. And this is the last time you'll hear on air, unless I extend it to Monday because I screwed something up. I'm going to run it instead of ending it Sunday night. I'm going to end it Monday night because I did screw something up. You might have tried to use a discount code already, and it might have failed. And if it did, it's because I screwed it up. I'm sorry. Discount code is fixed. It is Christmas. You can get MSB for $35 a year. That's stupid cheap. As long as you stay a member, you will lock that rate in for life. So it will apply to renewals as well. $35, use the discounts, get your money back, discount code CHRISTMAS. I know it's not the thing that most people would give to somebody else as a Christmas gift. If you want to do that, email me. I've done it before. It's kind of a manual process, but I've made it work. But maybe you should give yourself a Christmas present. Membership. In a discount club, that will save you more money than it costs. Nice gift. Nice gift for yourself. Anyway, with that, been, and again, discount code CHRISTMAS, thesurvivalpodcast.com. Click on members to learn more. Uh, use that on sign up. I also do take cryptocurrency, specifically Bitcoin. I take cash, check, etc. by snail mail if you want to do business that way. Everything's on the sign-up page. With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life. It sounds good to up or even if they don't. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay.